0: Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older men and women howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing
1: bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ask a dangerous
0: question Is Thanksgiving necessary? We bring news that Queen Elizabeth, age 95, has turned down an Oldie Award. We share an opportunity to take a round-the-world trip that covers almost a year. We take you to a place in Queens where they still serve malts and shakes the old-fashioned way. We announce yet another rate increase from your favorite postal service, and we enumerate the high cost of Turkey Day this Thanksgiving. Stay with us. Well, Paul... That's me. What's on your plate for today?
1: Oh, hey, you're ahead of me, aren't you? (laughs) We've got a pod nugget about how the traditional Thanksgiving meal is going to be much more expensive this year. Uh, It seems like there's droughts and and shipping problems and, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, And that started me thinking, why do we do a traditional Thanksgiving feast? I understand it's supposed to be a celebration of the pilgrim's first meal, but, you know, they didn't have turkey and mashed potatoes. They probably had some dry uh, deer jerky and a (laughs) a handful of corn. That's what they had available. Yeah,
0: No canned cranberry sauce? Uh,
1: Or pumpkin pie, for that Mm. matter. So anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. Is this an extravagance that has maybe outlived its usefulness? Hmm. Well,
0: are you suggesting that we get rid of the holiday altogether or perhaps revisit it in some way?
1: Well, yeah, I I mean the the idea of devoting a day to giving thanks mm-hmm. uh is not a bad idea. But how many people actually do give thanks on Thanksgiving? Hmm. Uh it it's it's a time to get together with the relatives that you don't often choose to see. Hmm. Uh, and so there, there's a kind of an underlying stress level to Thanksgiving anyway. Uh, I just I don't know. I, I do like the idea of giving thanks. Mm-hmm. But maybe individually we can take a look at how many things we should be grateful for in our life. And, and really do give thanks. And whoever you want to give thanks to. You know, it could be uh, Mother Nature or uh, whatever religion you practice, or maybe it's the neighbor next door who makes fantastic cookies, Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, There is some gratitude expressed on that day rather than gluttony.
0: Yeah, perhaps this is an opportunity that we look elsewhere and see who could we be thanking that we don't normally appreciate as much as we could. Yeah. And look at that day as a way of making sure that at least once a year we address that. I see. How, have I ever thanked you, Paul, for this podcast, for example?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best I can do. Well, you know, Jim, we have in this country what I would call pseudo-holidays. Mm. And I think Thanksgiving is right in that grouping. For example... Valentine's Day. Mm. That's not a holiday. It's an opportunity to uh, buy a gift for someone.
0: Yeah, tell that to your wife.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do. And she has a hearing problem, (laughs) hearing that particular answer. Yeah,
0: I think you're going to get some pushback if you say that Thanksgiving is a pseudo-holiday. Let's open it up to our fans. What do you think about Thanksgiving? Let's let's
1: go beyond fans. Let's let's open up to our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Not the same group. (laughs) The Queen of England may be 95 years old, but she turned down the Oldie of the Year Award because she didn't think she was qualified. This pod nugget is from Sky News for October 19th, 2021. Oldie Magazine is meant to be
0: a funny, light-hearted alternative to an English press obsessed with youth and celebrity. The Oldie of the Year Awards are a tongue-in-cheek celebration of Oldie achievements or
1: notoriety over the past year. According to Richard Ingrams, the founder of the magazine, it isn't enough to be an achiever, you still have to have some snap in your salary. (laughs) (laughs) How's your salary, Jim? (laughs) This year, they decided that Queen Elizabeth, who continues to lead a busy life at the age of 95 had adequate snap in her salary to win the award. Well, the Queen declined the
0: award in this letter penned by her private secretary. Quote, Her Majesty believes you are as old as you feel. As such, the Queen does not believe she meets the relevant criteria to be able to accept and hopes you will find a more worthy recipient. This message comes to you with Her Majesty's warmest best wishes. Unquote.
1: What a gracious note. Lovely, lovely. Queenly.
0: Hey, if you like ocean cruises, Royal Caribbean is offering the ultimate an around the world cruise that will take most of a year. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for May 28th, 2021.
1: There have been offers of world cruises before, but Royal Caribbean has topped the charts for the longest with the most stops. Hmm. The Serenade of the Seas will depart Miami on December 10th, 2023 for 274 days. That will include visits to every continent, 65 countries, and 11 world wonders.
0: The more than 150 destinations in Include just about every tourist draw on the planet. There will be stops for Mount Fuji, the Taj Mahal, the Great Barrier Reef, Chichen Itza, Machu Picchu, and the Great Wall of China. Uh, That's a mess of photo ops, not to mention a dresser full of souvenir t-shirts.
1: That's the good news. Mm -hmm. Here's the rest of the story. A modest interior stateroom will cost $61,000. A more elaborate junior suite will run $112,000. At that price, I assume everything else on board is free.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. And of course, there will be the usual amenities such as a theater, a fitness center, rock climbing, a nightclub, endless food, and a game show. With 150 stops, the game show is probably an adult version of Where's Waldo?
1: For folks who haven't taken a long cruise, 274 days could be a stress test. And what if you don't like your neighbors? Mm. A feud could make the cruise seem longer than you thought. Maybe instead of craft classes, they should offer sessions with a therapist?
0: I think it's included. Oh.
1: It's easy to get nostalgic about old-fashioned ice cream parlors when the newer versions are overlit, antiseptic, and staffed by indifferent high school students. This pod nugget is from the New York Times Tea Magazine for October twenty fifth, 2021. At Eddie's Sweet Shop in
0: Queens, the malts, shakes, and sundaes are still made the same way as they were in the 60s. Eddie's is often described as New York's longest surviving ice cream parlor. It's a neighborhood institution that still does it the old-fashioned way. Everything from the syrups to the whipped cream is made on the premises.
1: There was likely a soda fountain at this same address since at least the 40s, but Eddie's came to being in 1968 when Giuseppe Citrano... Bought Witt's Ice Cream Parlor and renamed it Eddie's Sweet Shop, although there never was an Eddie. The current owner is Giuseppe's son Vito, who runs the business with his wife and two sons.
0: Vito grew up working in the sweet shop alongside his father and grandfather. He's very proud that his two sons are continuing the tradition. Son Brandon works behind the counter, and Dad calls him a master mixologist for the custom flavors he creates. Younger son Joseph is usually downstairs making the various ice cream flavors and toppings.
1: When you enter Eddie's, it feels like you're in a time warp. The original pressed tin ceiling and green and white tile floors frame a long marble counter with wood-top swiveled stools that are fixed to the floor.
0: On the back wall is an elaborate built-in that houses an old refrigerator, syrups in jars, heavy glassware, and a large green antique-looking milkshake machine. The surroundings reflect the slogan of Eddie's, Take your children to the place your grandparents had ice cream. Well, at this point, you could change that to great-grandparents. I wonder if uh, we might see the Fonz if we went there. The U.S. Postal Service seems determined to be the slowest and most expensive way to deliver mail. This pod nugget is from the Quartz website for October 1st, 2021.
1: The Postal Service has been in financial trouble for years as Americans are using the USPS less each year. Part of the problem is online technology that delivers messages immediately. Another part of the problem is the USPS's expertise at being the slowest and most unreliable alternative.
0: And now, the latest self-inflicted wound to the foot. Starting October 3rd, the USPS imposed a holiday season surcharge affecting priority mail. Additionally, they are reducing air transportation of mail so that first class may now take up to five days to deliver. Reducing service and increasing price is an interesting business strategy.
1: Postmaster Louis DeJoy has proposed a 10-year plan to make up for losses by cutting costs, raising prices, and asking for legislation to slash employee benefits. So in addition to losing money, they may soon be losing employees. It looks like the DeJoy has gone out of the U.S. mail for both employees and customers. Thanksgiving this year is shaping up to be the most expensive meal in the history of the holiday. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for October twenty fifth, 2021.
0: Nearly every component of the traditional Thanksgiving dinner will cost more in 2021, from the disposable roasting pans to the coffee and pumpkin pie. The nation's food supply has been affected by a faulty supply chain, inflation, labor shortages, And bad weather.
1: Here's some examples. Sweet potato prices are going up because suppliers are paying truckers twice as much to get their product to market.
0: Packaged dinner rolls will have a heftier price tag because almost all the ingredients used by commercial bakers have heftier price tags.
1: Canned cranberry sauce has been affected by a shortage of cans due to pandemic shutdowns at domestic steel plants.
0: Turkey will be more expensive, largely because of the price of corn, the main feed for turkey.
1: Grapes, nuts, and coffee have been affected by severe drought. Even basic materials like pallets and cardboard boxes are in short supply.
0: So what are your options? You can go ahead and pay the price. Have your traditional meal, even if it seems more giving than thankful.
1: Or take inspiration from our ancestors. In colonial times, a person ate what was available when it was available.
0: Even if that means mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and Little Debbie Pumpkin Delight cookies for Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Mmm.
0: Jim Green, Ph.D., is a man who began life in a small mining town in Minnesota. He has lived many places, including an extended time in Alaska. It was there that he first began to appreciate the wisdom of Native Americans. His life since then has been in devotion to their educational goals. We caught up with Jim on the Rosebud Lakota Reservation in South Dakota, where he is on the staff at Sintegleska University.
1: We both grew up in a small town called Hibbing, Minnesota. Looking back now, what were the advantages of growing up in a community like that,
2: I think and it certainly had some advantages. Uh, but uh, I noticed with Hibbing, at least my experience is that it was it was socially stratified somewhat compared to some of the other towns. So that the the Iron Range it was such a high immigrant population, but in Hibbing, in particular, I thought, at least as I got older and, and worked with people from other other communities up there. Having had a social stratification of sorts, and I don't think they were necessarily from the supervisors in the mining community, Um, but if you didn't, word of that that particular group that had adequate funding for your family, you weren't an immigrant family, uh, or you were an immigrant family, I think you felt a certain uh, sense of that, that other communities didn't. But otherwise, no, it was such a small community, and as I mentioned, you can ride your bike all day, and no one would be around, and you had uh, a lot of sporting activities or playground activities. You felt like, I felt at least like the town was, it was ours.
1: Uh, you left Hibbing and went to school in Boston. Now, that must have been some kind of a cultural shock. you want to talk about that?
2: <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, but, you know, two levels. One is just the transition to a different place. But... You know, it was the kind of thing you were expected to do, or at least interiorly, And in that, well, I took it on, and uh, there's probably some significance to it. Let's, let's see if we can make it work. It, there was never any thought of I could drop out.
0: Well, at any rate, after college, you spent a year uh, teaching at a girls' school, and then you decided to go to Alaska. Was it in Alaska that you first became interested in Native American culture?
2: Before I had come up there, I had had that experience up at the, the Red Lake Reservation in northern Minnesota, which was close enough to where Paul and I grew up. And I was aware going there that I had no experience whatsoever with Native American culture other than the, the kind of stereotypes you grew up with on, uh, in that area and in Minnesota in general, at least you used to. And I was up there with a friend had invited me to go up there because she knew people. So here I was sitting in a home on the reservation, and these people were speaking Ojibwe, and I thought, what is this? you got to be kidding me. I, mean, I live, what, 90 miles or less away from here, and there's this whole culture, and people speak their own language, and I know nothing about it, which is not a, a negative thing about me, but about my exposure. But then the other funny story, I'm sitting there, and these two young girls come running in the house, and they're real excited, and they're Grandma, look what we got you. And they showed her it all these porcupine quills. But the grandma just looked at them and she started waving her finger. Did you put the tobacco in that porcupine's mouth? And he said, what? And she said, you go back there. You need to thank him for those quills before you take them. Now, you go back there. She started getting after him. And so, again, it was a cultural exposure to something that was quite different from anything I had experienced. But it wasn't until I came back to Minnesota again and... Uh, Ended up working with the Jesuits. Part of their work is, is in the re- on the reservations in South Dakota and, and around the world in different places with indigenous people, but particularly in South Dakota for this this area.
1: So you were in the Jesuits for a long time. What was it, seventeen years?
2: I think thirteen or fourteen. Paul. Oh, so long okay. Enough.
1: Well, obviously it, uh, entering the Jesuits was was a, a serious decision on your part, and I'm sure leaving it was also a serious decision. Uh, is there anything you would like to say about that?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure how to assess it. I, I know I knew when I had entered that uh, I was older than, than most of the kids, but I knew for myself that clericalism was something that I just couldn't deal with. So I said, I don't know how I'm going to stay and not become a priest, but I rationalized it to some extent because I, I appreciated being in there and, and doing the work. So I kind of rationalized and well, you well, no, know, this decision to be a priest, I'll, I'll work with it, but I know for sure before Final Vols I'll make a decision. And of course, I had that in mind and I didn't take Final Vols because I left before that.
1: You know, South Dakota was uh, the spawning ground for the American Indian Movement, Dennis Banks, Russell Means. Does that movement still exist and did that impact your life at all?
2: It did initially when I first came out to, um, out to Pine Ridge, to Red Cloud Indian School. The Jesuits were running that school. The American Indian Movement pretty much got started right there. A uh, the little community just beyond Pine Ridge it, before they occupied Wounded Knee. So my immediate impact or experience of it was the kids who were in the school, in high school when I went there. This was in 79. Well, 73 wasn't that long before. So as kids, they were very influenced by it. And many of them took advantage of the anxiety or the, the publicity around it to act out in school okay, on the basis of a kind of a American Indian and AIM standpoint. For the most part, they were just acting out, trying to get out of things. But they had a real strong background with this American Indian movement. You can't tell us what to do. So uh, I was assistant principal. <laughs> had yeah, had to enforce discipline. So, but luckily, there was a the principal at the time. was the first uh, Lakota principal they, they had ever had there. He, had a, he was really savvy. I, I just counted on him to steer me. But over the years, yeah, the American Indian Movement has had a very powerful influence on family. Jim, would
0: you say that young Native Americans particularly have a difficult time searching for their identity?
2: A good friend of mine I work with, Ben Black there. Ben has a really, I mean to me it's significant anyway, he talks about the horizontal logic that all these kids, all of the, the kids like him experienced in boarding school over the years, that is the, the teachers and in this case the priests and the nuns had this horizontal logic that said, if you do this and this and this, dress like us, speak English, think like us, work hard, then this will happen. That is, you will be treated like anyone, like any white person. You can go out and find jobs. So he said, Ben says, well, we kind of took that seriously and we worked hard and we studied and we learned, learned the language. He says, in my case, I never gave up my language because it's spoken all the time at home. But uh, he said, when I found out after I graduated, I went off the reservation and I found out I wasn't treated like a you non-Indian. Know, I was treated like the way people have always treated us. You... SOB, go back to the reservation where you belong. He said, you have to have a, a vertical logic, a vertical identity. He says, you're who you are. You're, that's who you are from the moment you're born in your family. And no one can tell you any different, but you have to discover what that means.
0: Are you still involved with teaching young Native Americans?
2: So it's similar. I'm working at a tribal college in, on the Rosebud Reservation. It's called Sintegaleska University. That's named after one of their um, most prominent leaders, Spotted Tail, and that's his Lakota name, Sinfegoreshka. There are about, I think, 30-some tribal colleges and universities around the country. They started back in maybe 1970. It was uh, Jimmy Carter, I think, passed the Tribal College and Community College Act, and Bill Clinton reaffirmed it in the 90s. So uh, it's designed to serve primarily tribal students, but not necessarily everyone's welcome. Uh, Because tribal students either don't have the opportunity to go to college or if they do go off the reservation, if that's where they've grown up, uh, it's a fairly difficult transition for them. So tribal colleges have been founded to serve them on the reservation where they are. It's accessible. And there's a certain amount of, I think, uh, understanding of where they're coming from, what their needs are.
1: So what has teaching meant to you?
2: My response, I think, Paul, is it's been a long low journey for me to realize I think that I, I don't really you know, truly understand much unless I've discovered it myself and I don't mean innovative things necessarily I just mean the kind of practical things people try to teach us and I think education is I like to see it shifting and I'm influenced by Catenio a lot but his point is there's, you, the only thing you can educate in the person is their awareness the rest of it is just uh, something that they can find out by themselves, but you can provoke awareness on how to think. So the idea of subordinating teaching to learning is kind of where I've come in, in, in teaching and how to do that so that my role as a teacher is not to pass on to you information that I have and you don't, or to find ways to motivate you to, to get that in, to, to listen and learn that information that I tell you or someone tells you before. important. It's very different, my role is to try to provoke some awareness in you to follow your interests. And then as you do that, and I set up opportunities for you to do that, I can also help you provoke awarenesses on how to be more critical in doing it.
0: Well, Jim, looking forward, uh, where do you see yourself uh, going with all of this that you've learned? It's a it's a fascinating trip you've taken. Uh, what do you see happening next, or is there a next?
2: Yeah, so I wonder if we don't all ask that question, Jim, at, at our age. Uh, and, and it does occur to me a lot. Um, I have a feeling that there's another thing that I could uh, maybe move into. And just what that would be. I have some sense. I think uh, I've learned a lot by interacting with people from another culture. and Not just Native American, but other cultures. And um, I, I'd like to be able to do some of that. Maybe internationally or something. So.
1: Jim. Uh, you, you're you really at a peaceful place. I admire that, and I'm happy for you.
2: I really appreciate you guys, what you're accomplishing. I listened to some of your podcasts. I know you first started it, and I thought, well, that's interesting. It didn't surprise me that you would you know meander into that kind of a role, but I'm really pleased to hear what you're doing and to listen to some of your work. And I think, hopefully, people will be exposed to it enough that they can just kind of relax and look forward to it. You guys do a great job. I I love your introductions. You know, that's a great uh, format to do that first, to get people on board, and then you listen to someone else and you're ready for it. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, we think there's nothing more valuable than people's stories. I mean, that's really... And we learn more about ourselves through people's stories, too. So, anyway, Mm -hmm. thank you for participating.
0: Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We could always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned, keep howling at the moon, and our best wishes for a happy Thanksgiving.